Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits, people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is a recovering alcoholic, and he'll be sharing his lived experience as a problem drinker, including how Alcoholics Anonymous helps him and other problem drinkers overcome the impact of alcohol abuse. So welcome to the show, Mike. G'day, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for having me on, Bill. No worries. So, Mike, we usually start talking about growing up and family and stuff, you know, look at the things that influenced you as a child. And so do you want to tell us a bit about um, you growing up? Yeah, sure thing. Born to a, a musician and a nurse. Um, they were both, both my parents were, oh, you know what I mean? Like uh, eccentric, um, different, you know, different from the rest, that sort of thing. Um, and I grew up to be quite similar. Now, I grew up uh, mostly with my mother oh, up until the age of 12. Um, and then I moved in with dad after that. Um, but I'd see dad, you know, like every Wednesday and every second weekend and that sort of thing. You know, like he was, uh, still is a very active musician now, uh, playing the, like a violin, playing Celtic music. Um, and I'd often come to gigs with him when I was quite young. So I was around a lot of music and a lot of eccentric musicians when I was younger, um, in a lot of pubs when I was younger as well. And that sort of year, you know, both my like dad and my mum are really good people, but struggling with a lot of the trauma of their own. And, you know, that trauma being unresolved from their history, um, you know, passes down the line and it becomes intergenerational. So, you know, there are a lot of a lot of instances where, you know, like um, my relationship with them and, you know, like the home I was in is quite unstable, you know, it's quite unpredictable. And I learned to love them, but I learned to fear them at the same time. Know, it's been hard to attach to people properly ever since. And, you know, that, that was uh, one of the foundations of, you know, what would inevitably uh, become my alcoholism. Um but, yeah, I got into school when I was young, um, even in kinder, you know, like I never felt like I really fit in. I remember distinctly, uh, you know, when like all the other kindergartners would have, um, you know, like quiet time, they'd put like mats down on the floor, everyone would be given like a box of toys, the lights would be turned down. They'd always send me to the toddler room for a nap and I, I never, I still to this day don't know why, I think perhaps I was too distracting. Um I have a diagnosis of ADHD now. Um, I probably had it then, you know, uh, so I'm not too surprised. But, you know, I didn't feel a part of. And moving into primary school, same thing. I uh, changed around a few times. Uh, started off in Cheltenham. Then went out to the Dandenongs, out in Cockatoo, and then over the Monbulk um, to a private Christian school. A very small, sheltered environment. And, you know, like I fit in, I don't know, reasonably well, like at that time in my life. You know, perhaps not as well as others might, you know, like I wasn't too well socialised, you know, I didn't really understand a lot of social etiquettes and how to interact with people in a way that, well, would, you know, be conducive to be keeping friends or making friends in the first place and that sort of year. But in year six, you know, like I you know, discovered the internet, you know, like I discovered death metal at this stage too, you know, like it's quite young, it's 12, 
I'm going from listening to stuff like Green Day to, you know, fans like Cradle of Filth and Give Me Board Year, you know, like it's the complete opposite end of the spectrum and just had, you know, like that sort of teenage revolution, you know, like but a lot earlier than a lot of my peers would or that you typically expect. And, you know, I went through all of that whilst at this very sheltered private Christian school, you know, listening to death metal, you know, like I discovered self-harm at this stage as well, like as a coping mechanism because I didn't know how to cope with life. Can I just ask you there about when you said you weren't coping with life, what sort of things were you uh, experiencing at that time? Um, a lot of emotional dysregulation, uh, like not being able to control my emotions, you know, like it's alcoholism, it's also ADHD, that sort of gear, and just not being well socialised, not knowing how to deal with my emotions in a positive and constructive manner because, you know, what was modelled to me by my parents was not that, you know. Um, they did their best and they had a lot of moments where they did do that well, but sort of more moments than not, just seeing them you know, fly off the handle, act unpredictably, that sort of thing. And that's what was modelled to me. You know, that's what I learnt, you know, what we grow up around and see is what we end up doing. So that, you know, like not being able to handle what was going on inside my own head, my own heart, uh, what was going on outside of me, uh, interacting with my peers, you know, interacting with teachers and parents, probably above all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So were you able to have many friends? Was that difficult? Um, that's always been difficult for me. Even now, but like the reason it's difficult now is because, you know, I'm quite socially anxious and I don't make enough time for it, to be totally honest with you. But back then it was just, ah, oh, these crushing feelings of not being enough, like being insecure, you know, trying to make friends with people that would then take advantage of me and bully me and that sort of thing because, you know, like I was a bit of a pushover, you know, like I just wanted people to like me. And I wanted love, you know, like humans crave intimacy and connection and friendship and companionship. And I wanted those things, but I didn't know how to effectively attach to the right people in a healthy manner. And that's been an ongoing journey that, again, is a huge part of my alcoholism. Yeah. So when were you first exposed to alcohol? At uh, the age of, I think it was like 12. You know, like my first drunk was a few years later. But so the first drink I had, I think um, I was at my mum's place. She got me like a four pack of Blue Cruises. I'm fairly certain I drank all of them that night. And I remember, you know, like a subtle effect. You know, I remember feeling different, but of course I couldn't at that age identify what being drunk was. Um, and then, you know, like a, a sip of beer, like here and there growing up, um, you know, that sort of thing, like uh, only a sip, like a small sip. But like at the age of 14, uh, I just had this impulse, you know, like I'd started smoking cigarettes by that age, you know, me and my friends would go to the park specifically to smoke cigarettes, you know, it was the age where that was an event in itself. And one night I was just at home and I decided, you know, like oh, I'll get stuck into some of dad's whiskey because he had like quite a few bottles at the bottom of the pantry and I think I was just curious. But, you know, I drank nearly the whole bottle in one night, you know, and if that isn't like a marker for alcoholism or inevitable alcoholism, I don't know what else is, you know. <laughs> so did you drink to blackout at that point or not? No, I certainly didn't drink to blackout. Like it was a mixture of really loving the effects and then not knowing my limits, you know. Like I knew nothing about alcohol. Like to put it into context, I was mixing whiskey in the same bottle as Pepsi, orange juice and Gatorade which is just, I'm sure there are going to be some whiskey drinkers out there who think that is abhorrent. Uh, I agree, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds crazy, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the next day, did you sort of reflect on your drinking or not? No, I was a bit too young for that. I didn't think about it. Uh, I really didn't think about it at all, to be honest. I only really started thinking about that first instance when I got into recovery and started identifying alcoholic features of my drinking going back that far, you know. I just, yeah, I blacked out. 
uh, vague memories of, you know, like that night standing like in the doorway and just, you know, like I'd puked on the floor. It was very spacey. I woke up the next day, dad had cleaned it up for me, said, I'll do that for you once, but you know, not again. I was like, thanks dad. And I remember nothing. Um, And then I just kept on, you know, living my life. Yeah. So did that become a regular occurrence for you, drinking? Yeah, yeah. So like maybe not drinking a whole bottle of whiskey. I couldn't drink whiskey for about two years after that. You know, I'm surprised I didn't get alcohol poisoning, to be honest. But yeah, like I'd you know, go out on the weekends and like one, I don't know if you ever heard of Passion Pop before. Uh, it's like yeah. a terrible champagne. Yeah, well, that, that's what was cheap then. So, you know, one bottle of that would probably do me. Um, I forget how many standards that is. I think maybe like five. But that would be enough to, yeah, it'd be enough to send me off. And then, you know, like as the years progressed, um, I just liked the effect. You know, alcohol gave me all of the things in social environments and eventually in my own mind that I didn't like have access to at that stage in my life or didn't feel like I had access to. So, you know, the ability to talk to girls, the ability to, I'll oh, just talk to anybody really, uh, the ability to relax. But just to be an easygoing, relaxed, funny guy that could get along with people and, you know, had a chance of being popular, you know, like the alcohol gave that to me, absolutely. Because I couldn't, oh, I just couldn't figure that out for myself, you know, like all throughout my childhood, I couldn't figure that out. All throughout my teen years and even adult years, I couldn't figure that out. And, you know, in sobriety now, I've realised, like, that's not who I am by default. I was pretending to be somebody else for a very, very long time. Yeah. So... Yeah, if you started drinking around 14 and you left school sort of 17 or so, hmm. was drinking it and school a regular thing as well? Yeah, I wouldn't go to school drunk. Like, I'd go to school stunned um, for sure. Like, I was big into the bongs, like, between, oh, I reckon, the age of 15 to about 18. And just after I turned 18, I stopped smoking bongs and, like, that never really became an issue again. Um, yeah, like the desire to escape and use drugs was obviously an issue, but that specifically, not so much. But with the drinking, yeah, like I wouldn't go to school pissed, but, you know, I spend plenty of time on the weekends getting pissed and, you know, like uh, on a Wednesday night, me and some mates would go to a particular pub, you know, like a regular of ours and, you know, I'd drink to excess, that sort of thing. And now I'd miss a lot of school, you know, like I was living at a home at that time because Dad and I had some disagreements. So I was living quite far away, you know, like about oh, 20 k's away from where I went to school I think maybe but yeah like it became more and more common like the older I got and then when I left school um I didn't have the Monday to Friday routine anymore um I'd stopped smoking so much weed um and yeah started drinking on weekdays or weeknights at that stage that was like about the age where my drinking like lost its weekend structure you know what I mean yeah so how old were you then about 20 or so uh 18 when i left school okay yeah that's when it started to lose its structure because i'd be working oh it could be like any any days per week like i'd typically work on the weekends and then you know maybe monday tuesday wednesday or something like that or it's hospitality hours you know i was a bit alive the shop yeah so did it interfere with your work at that point yeah yeah it did I had a number of jobs like after i left school in kitchens um and yeah it made me late Oh, it just made me a bit prickly, not as effective at work, that sort of thing. A high pressure, like kitchen hand jobs, you know, some really busy, busy restaurants. And, you know, there's a lot of absenteeism because I just couldn't be stuffed, you know what I mean? Like I'd gotten so pissed the night before that like I was too hungover to come to work. And by that stage, I hadn't developed like the good work ethic I have now. Uh, so I lost quite a few jobs and, you know, inevitably it affected my disposition 
um, and the way that I held myself and spoke with other people as well, you know what I mean? Like that level of alcohol, which was, you know, nowhere close to the amount that I was drinking by the end of it all. But, you know, like just the regular drinking was, yeah, it was interfering with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So did you tend to drink alone or with friends? Started off in social environments very much. Um, and, you know, like at the age of 15, 16, 17, you know, I was drinking to blackout quite regularly, not on purpose, but, you know, I just didn't know my limits. But, yeah, being in social environments, yeah. Um, and then I reckon about, oh, it's hard to pinpoint, I don't remember, to be honest, but um, I reckon, yeah, 20, 20 21, maybe, um, I started to drink, like, a bit more at home. I hadn't really kicked off by this stage, but, you know, like, it, it was getting there, yeah. Yeah. So did your mum or dad try and do anything to assist? I remember now in sobriety, funnily enough, both at two stages, you know, like mum had spoken to me and said, you know, like be careful about your alcohol consumption because alcoholism runs in the family. And it does, you know, like I have some family members that were and are like chronic alcoholics. So, you know, she, she tried to warn me and at that stage, you know, like it wasn't enough of a problem for me that I heeded that warning. And now I look back on that, I'm like, yeah, she was right. Absolutely, she was right. And your dad had mentioned a few times, you know, to be careful about it, you know, like he tried to sort of say to me, you know, like there's some instances like where I had been drinking at home and sort of, you know, I hadn't really been doing too much, just sort of like being in my room drinking that sort of gear, you know, I sort of tried to start the conversation about it, but I'm a very stubborn young man um, and that's easing up with time, but I just wouldn't have it, you know what I mean? Like it's an infinite list of reasons as to why, you know, like, no, it's okay, dad, and sort of just, you know, drop it. Yeah, I guess a lot of it's denial. It's not a problem. Oh, 100%. And at that stage, it was more like ignorance and it became denial, like, uh, you know, like eventually down the track, you know, like when I was aware that there was a problem, but I was denying it actively. But at that stage, I just didn't know, you know, like I thought I drank normally. I was around people that probably didn't drink as much as I did, not all of them, but, you know, like weren't too fussed about how much I drank. It just, yeah, like it just didn't occur to me, man. Like not until many years later, you know. Yeah. So did it affect your relationships with people? Hell yeah, yeah. 100%. I think probably like my relationships, especially my intimate ones, like uh, the domain of my life that suffered the most um, because of my alcoholism. So alcoholism had to come first, you know what I mean? Like I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it until like 2020 when I got into recovery and you know, shortly before that. But so, yeah, absolutely. You know, like drinking, I don't know, like it made me not like aggressive or violent, but like not pleasant to be around, maybe unpredictable, mercurial, unreliable, selfish, self-concerned, resentful, all of those things, you know. And it was quite often that I'd just, I don't know, just get pissed and be totally inconsiderate of the people around me and of the people whom I loved and were closest to me, you know. And simply just, you know, like partners of mine, you know, like girlfriends, like just seeing what was going on, you know, like, I think that's, you know, like that has an effect in itself, you know, like regardless of my behaviour or not, the behaviour was there, but just them seeing what I was doing to myself, yeah, 100%, like that alcohol has, yeah, cooked quite a few of my relationships, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. So did anybody try and stop you? Did they, you know, did they actively try and help you or not? I'd like to see them try back then, to be honest. And, you know, I'd like said as much. Like uh, I remember saying to a partner 
quite a few years ago, you know, like if you ever told me to stop drinking, I'd probably tell you to get it, you know, like, well, maybe I didn't say that, but I, I forget, maybe I wasn't quite so passionate about it, but, um, you know, the, the principles there, you know, like I wouldn't have it, you know, like, and I still was in ignorance of the fact that, you know, I was an alcoholic, you know, like I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what AA was, you know, it's going back quite a few years, maybe like five years, but, you know, that was the general attitude, you know, like, I can see it for what it is now. If anyone got in the way of me and my drinking, like they're out. Because, you know, drinking was, I don't know, like, again, not realising it at the time, like that was the thing that was permitting me to be okay with myself, okay with life, okay with everything. And, again, I'm a very defiant and stubborn person. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I wouldn't have it. Even if people tried, like I'd argue the point. Yeah, typical typical alcoholic there. Oh, yeah, classic alcoholic, yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, listen, we might take a short break there. This week, we're featuring the music of Heavy Wax. They're a recently formed Gold Coast seven-piece roots group. They're ready to serve up some high-energy rock, soul, funk, reggae, mash. They're all around, yeah. Standing tall before the unknown. Still my kills are strong, yeah. Pressure is rising, books and books.
song was by Heavy Wax and it was called In My Head. Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today, I'm talking with Mike and we're talking about recovery from alcohol abuse with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Mike, before the break, we were talking about, I guess, relationships and problems that alcohol caused in your life. So do you want to tell us a bit about, uh, I guess, the progression of alcohol from, uh, say, your early 20s? Yeah, yeah. So early 20s, um, like for context, by the age of 18, like I discovered Psytrance festivals, you know, like Bush Doofs, they're called in Australia. Um, that's still a scene that I'm involved with now, you know, a much different relationship to it. But you know, I got out there and, you know, like there was just huge parties, man, huge production setups, that sort of thing. Um, they got the days at a time if it was a bigger one. Um, and that was just like, I felt like I'd arrived, man. You know, like I hear a lot of alcoholics say that in the rooms. I felt like I'd arrived, you know, this was my people, you know, like this was my scene, man, this is my music. And everyone in that scene or most people, you know, like were very open about using and drinking a variety of different things. So, that was the context of oh, pretty much like my the first half of my twenties, about you know, or eighteen to about twenty-five, um, going to a lot of those events, playing gigs there, that sort of thing, um, and drinking a lot, you know. Like I said earlier, um, you know, like about 19, 20, 21, you know, like I was starting to drink to blackout like here and there, you know what I mean? Like I didn't have a very good track record with that when I was younger, uh, but it was still happening, you know, like in my early 20s and that sort of thing. Um, and that affected my relationships, my jobs, everything, of course. Um, but eventually I discovered, you know, amphetamines. And that was a big part of my story as well. Like the two often went hand in hand. And that was, yeah, like for a good few years, like that was what I would do. You know, like I would drink at parties, I'd take speed and that to a greater degree than alcohol alone enabled me to, you know, just keep my behaviour in check. I still made a lot of silly decisions and wasn't particularly pleasant to be around on a number of occasions, but, you know, that's what I used, you know, so I could keep drinking for, like, days at a time sometimes, you know, like at events or whatever, 
just starting to get tired from the alcohol. And by that point, you know, like it's clear to me that alcohol had stopped doing its job. You know, I'm not sure it ever really did its job. You know, like I think looking back on my history with it, if alcohol was my employee, I would have sacked him when I was 14, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, like it progressed, you know, like it became more and more common. Um, like I'd drink during the week, you know, like a few beers each night. And eventually, you know, that started to look like me, I don't know, just becoming cognizant of the fact that I was having an issue with it, you know, like I didn't want to drink that much. Occasionally things would happen when I was pissed that like I wasn't proud of, but, you know, like caused me shame and guilt and, you know, have caused me like amends that I need to make nowadays in recovery. But for the most part, like my behaviour wasn't good. My mental health wasn't good. It was affecting every domain of my life and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, you know. And then at the age of, oh, how old was I then? Uh, maybe 24 or 25, I got a job at a warehouse that distributes fine wine and spirits. And I reckon that was probably the biggest misstep of my adult life. <laughs> but like at that warehouse, you know, like I discovered like high-end gin. Now I remember having a sip of gin, like when I was about 14, 15, you know, I was with a friend and we were exploring sort of, you know, the feeling of alcohol, you know, as you do when you're a teenager and you had this like bottle of Gordon's and I remember taking a straight sip on it and just thinking like, what was that? You know, like tastes like dishwash liquid, I hated it, you know, like it tasted crap. Um, but I discovered high-end gin at this place, got a fine wine there too, and then it's you know, pretty heavily discounted for staff. They're like 30, 40% off. And, you know, it's sort of like 90 to $100 bottles of gin or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, that kicked off my alcoholic obsession with spirits, you know. Like I never used to be a huge spirit drinker prior to that. Just drink far too much beer or far too much good or something like that. But, um, you know, like when I discovered fine gin, um, it added you know, a bit of class to my drinking. And it also added the ability to get pissed in about five seconds flat, you know. Wow. Yeah. So does that mean you drank less or you drank more? I drank more for sure, yeah. Like I've developed like over time like a, a very large tolerance to alcohol. You know, like I'm not sure if it's my genes, my Irish background, the fact that I'm an alcoholic, probably like mostly the latter, but the other two as well. Like by the end of my drinking, like I could go through like 30 standards like over the course of 12 to 15 hours and not feel sick, you know, and like be drunk but like not blackout drunk you know like even without speed you know that was the sort of tolerance that I built up to it and yeah like I started drinking more yeah um it became much more accessible I started tying it to my emotional well-being you know I'd have like weird almost like religious rituals with the alcohol you know what I mean like uh I just that that was what I was doing man I was worshiping it you know what I mean because it gave me this sensation that was so elusive yet just so freeing freeing and reassuring um, that I wanted more of it. I just wanted more and more of it. Um, and like I said, it just got worse and worse and worse. And at that stage, you know, again, age 25, 26, I uh, wasn't drinking every day. But I think, yeah, that was probably the last period in my life where I wasn't drinking every day, you know, like it was just about there. And then over the next few years, I'm 28 now, yeah, it just kicked right off, man. So... Alcoholics do drink a lot, and as you said, you, you had a high tolerance for alcohol. But did it affect your life, you know, your ability to care for yourself and do your work? 100%, yeah. I was always hungover at work. Um, I was pretty good about going to work. I never went to work pissed. Hungover, sure, so the alcohol in my system. But, you know, like, it did affect my disposition at work, my energy levels. Um, you know, I was working as a sign writer at the time. 
like that's a pretty full-on job you know like long hours a lot of like pretty technical but also laborious work uh, a lot of work outdoors on ladders in you know like scissor lifts that sort of gear um and yeah like it affected my disposition and my ability to work absolutely it did what was the first half of your question what about taking care of yourself oh yeah absolutely yeah like i'd spend all my money on uh piss like I couldn't take care of myself like to the degree that I take care of myself now. You know, I mean, like, I can go like I've had a real sore neck recently, right? Because I'm working on my posture. Yesterday I went to the physio. Today I went to the supermarket to get some like physio cream, which is you know like a lotion you put on. I can do those things without worrying about my finances because I don't spend all my money on booze and drugs. Uh, but I, that's what I used to spend it on. You know, like I never really had any savings. Always running out of disposable income. And yeah, I couldn't take care of myself, man. I was giving my body a thrashing and my mental health was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I had no clue what was going on. You know, like my head was just starting to spin faster and faster and faster. And I just, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't take care of myself at all. Yeah. So what about accommodation? You know, was it difficult getting accommodation and keeping it? Yeah. Uh, so like a brief timeline, uh, the house I live in now, out in the eastern suburbs, I've been here one year, uh, just about. And prior to that, you know, like two years, I was up in the northern suburbs for about, oh, I don't know, like seven months. And I was living with my dad for a number of years before that. So yeah, when I was up in the northern suburbs, you know, oh, and, you know, like that second house after the northern suburbs. Um, and even here, you know what I mean? Like my drinking, what affected everything, you know? Like I'd like run out of booze or drugs and I'd like steal them from my housemates, you know? And, you know, like there are some that I need to make some amends for in that respect. Mostly like, you know, I'd just front up and tell them and like, you know, make it good. But that didn't change the fact that, you know, I'd be in their room when they weren't home taking their stuff, you know? And that's that's true addict behaviour, you know? Like that's some junky stuff, you know? Like, and that's who I was when I drank and drugs. And, you know, like it affected my disposition as well, you know? Like I've had ongoing struggles with, wanting everything my way in share houses because I grew up, you know, as, a, as an only child, you know, I have a sister, but I didn't live with her. And I'm an alcoholic. You know, alcoholics want everything their way, you know, unless they are spiritually fit. Um, if I stay close to AA, you know, I am spiritually fit. It's less of an issue. But otherwise, you know, especially in my drinking, yeah, everything had to be my way, man. I was just prickly, prickly. Um, and that makes share housing pretty hard, you know what I mean? Because everyone has the right to be there. Yeah. Could you manage relationships, close relationships at that point or not? No, I don't think I've ever really been able to manage close relationships too well. Like I said earlier, you know, like I've got a lot of attachment difficulties. Having ADHD as well, you know, I wasn't diagnosed or medicated back then, you know, and that ties in with the alcoholism, you know, like alcoholism, ADHD, complex trauma make it like very difficult to attach to anyone in a way that's healthy, conscious, and safe you know it's hard for me to feel safe and alcohol gave that to me for a long time until it didn't yeah i I don't think i ever really figured out how to have like a healthy relationship with a woman and the alcohol it it permitted me to meet people it permitted me to have the confidence to get it going but in the follow-through no trash like i won't like i'm not into self-flagellation you know i won't beat myself up like too much because you know there's a lot of a lot of effort to like change and to be a good partner and that sort of thing. Um, but the alcohol was absolutely getting in the way of any of that. You know, I couldn't make any change that stuff because alcohol always had to come first, you know? Yeah, that, that's often said. I'm a member of Alamon and a lot of people, family, don't realise that the alcoholic only really wants the bottle. And if you're between them and the bottle, then you're in the way. Hmm. 
100%. And living with the disease of alcoholism and then again ADHD as well, you know, the two things interlinking with each other in relationships. Yeah, it's like there were so many times where that disease like would get in the way of me being kind and loving, helpful, being of service, being reliable, all of those sort of things and a wealth of misunderstanding and uh, ignorance, you know, like on the part of my partner. And that's not their fault. You know, I'm an alcoholic. It's my responsibility to get myself right. But it was a lot of that. Yeah. Um, You know, it's like commonly mistaken for, I don't know, like a lack of like willpower, like a weak will. Yeah. That's very common. Oh, yeah, laziness, carelessness, all these things. And, you know, like if you saw the efforts that I went to to get a drink or a drug, like you would, you'd know I'm a very strong-willed person. <laughs> <laughs> Just not when it comes to not drinking, yeah. Yeah. So when did you get your ADHD diagnosed? Uh, that was last year, oh, in September, I think. So I'd like tried earlier in the year, but at that time, like I was, you know, like at the tail end of a three-month lapse. Um, so I've been six and a half months sober again now. But at the tail end of that, you know, like I'd left AA, I was drinking like again a bottle of gin every day plus beers, you know, like plus whatever else, you know, drugs or that sort of thing. And, you know, getting that diagnosis and then, you know, like medication and treatment was like the only hope that I had at that stage because I wasn't in the rooms. So I had no hope. And I went and the psychiatrist wouldn't prescribe me the medication because the amount that I was drinking, which is fair enough because their duty of care means that she can't because it might kill me. And then, yeah, like that led me back into like recovery, you know, like I held a lot of resentment towards that woman for quite some time. But now I look back on it and I'm not sure that I would have gotten back into AA as soon as I did if that didn't happen. Um, So that was, you know, one of the gifts, one of the gifts of recovery. And I couldn't quite see it at the time. Um, but yeah, 27 years of not having that diagnosis of ADHD, not having it recognised. And you know, speaking outside of the program for a second, I think ADHD, you know, like played into my alcoholism, absolutely. Um, but at the foundation, I'm an alcoholic, you know, like if I treat my alcoholism, it means that I can treat all of the other things that I have in my life, like the complex trauma, like the ADHD. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to talk about how and why you sought help in AA? Yeah, so I'd had, you know, like across like uh, like the last few years that I've described, I'd had a few periods of like attempting to stop. I think the longest I'd stopped at once like was about three, four months, but there was a drink in the middle of that, not a drunk, but a drink. Um, and, you know, I was using other drugs and that sort of thing. So I wasn't entirely sober, but that was probably the best effort that I'd made. Um, and then a period, you know, just periods of like a week, two weeks, you know, maybe a day or two here and there, like it just... So many that I don't even remember how many times I tried to stop on my own willpower. And, you know, I just got into that stage again, you know, like lockdown, you know, I came into effect in March 2020. And I thought to myself, ah, well, you know, like that suits me just fine. Like I like, I'm very introverted. Um, I like to isolate myself. And by that stage, I loved just drinking at home uh, because it was low effort. You know what I mean? Like if I ran out of booze, I could just go down the street to the bottle shop, which is not far from my house, or I could order it to my house which is dangerous. But, you know, like I was very content to stay at home and just drink and drink and drink. And I'd started a new relationship by that stage and eventually got to the point where, you know, like she was starting to say things about, so we need to have some sober time together, that sort of thing. Um, And I was a bad influence for her, you know what I mean? Um, Like I enabled a lot of addictive tendencies and my partner at the time as well. Um, But, you know, she was dissatisfied. I could tell. And like, I was getting that feeling like, all right, I need to do something. I need to change. And, spending all my savings on booze in a time where, you know, work was entirely uncertain um, and I shouldn't have been spending that much, you know, like I was just spending impulsively on 
expensive pest because I'm an alcoholic, you know, um, and alcohol comes first. So it's those two things in combination, you know, they were starting to creep up on me. And then just, again, this feeling like, you know, like I don't want to be like this in my heart of hearts. Like I don't want to drink every day. And again, I don't think I can moderate, you know, because I've tried moderation so many times, but I've also just tried to swear it off and it always came back into my life because you know, I'm an alcoholic, you know. So like when I got stuck into AA, um, you know, about six months prior to that, I tried like um, phone counselling. It's like one hour per week talking to a counsellor on the phone. Hey, full credit to them, you know, like I thought they were very good at their job. But, you know, like to put it into context as an alcoholic, harm minimisation doesn't work for me. Uh, and I drink beer while talking about not drinking so much beer to them on the phone, you know, <laughs> really selling myself short there, you know. Um, so I like, tried accessing professional help in the past and that wasn't like specifically for alcohol and drugs. It just didn't work for me. Um, and I got into AA August 2020. At the tail end of uh, like a bender, like I'd had a few eckies and gone through like yet uh, another just huge quantity of gin and, yeah, like the sun had come up at this stage and it was like one of those like murky crappy Melbourne mornings you know it's not raining it's not sunny you know it's just somewhere in between it's really just quite I don't know just a bit icky and I felt icky that's how I felt you know I was coming down like I was pissed again and I was just so aware of the fact that I needed to change you know like the alcohol wasn't doing its job anymore and I couldn't keep running and then out of nowhere and like this is a bit of a god job you know what I mean um like out of nowhere like a mate of mine from NA who, uh, you know, recovered and is in re recovery from um, like a serious meth addiction for about eight and a half years now. And, like he messaged me out of the blue, like after I called direct line, you know, they couldn't help me like with anything, you know, they could offer me the once a week phone counselling and I've done that and it didn't work. So I'd gotten off the phone with them feeling totally hopeless. And it's just the context, you know, that is when he messaged me. When I was feeling totally down on my luck and hopeless, he just messaged me saying, how are you going? And I was like, yeah, not good at all. You know, like I'm not good. Like I need help. And then we had a chat later on, you know, like that night, you know, I'd finished my bottle of gin that night, you know, and like that was the last time I drank for about oh, 80 days or something like that. And I got into AA, uh, you know, the next day, you know, like, um, you know, first meeting was down in Camberwell, uh, but it was all by Zoom at that stage. But, you know, like big respect to that meeting, you know, for welcoming me in, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we might take another short break there.
I've no compassion for your actions at first degree. Yeah, I've been screaming, don't stop the screaming. What you gonna do about it anyway? Telling how you found a better place to be She's been confiding They tell me keep far away That's what they say So you think I'm a fool I don't care about that You see it's all in the past And I won't look back And now I'm flying Yeah I'm flying song was a game by Heavy Wax and it was called Take Life Easy and both songs were courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. If you would like to hear powerful speakers on recovery from the effects of alcoholism, join Alcoholics Anonymous at their national convention in Melbourne this April. AA's national convention with Al-Anon participation will take place from the 22nd to the 24th of April 2022. Early bird tickets are on sale up until the 31st of January. For more information, go to the AA National Convention website at aanatcon2022.com. AA's National Convention with Al-Anon participation at the Pullman Hotel, 65 Queens Road, Albert Park. For more information about problem drinking, call Alcoholics Anonymous on 1300 222 222 or Al-Anon Family Groups on 1300 252 666. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Mike, and we're talking about recovery from alcohol abuse with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Mike, before the break, we were talking about getting into AA the first time. And I guess particularly with the help of somebody you knew who, who'd been in NA for a while, how did he convince you, I guess, to go to AA? He got me at the right moment, Bill. 
I've seen that time and time again, you know, like when an alcoholic or an addict is just feeling, I don't know, just like broken enough, like out of solutions and desperate enough, like it's often the best time to talk with them because they're ready for a solution. And I was ready for a solution at that point because I had tried everything at my disposal and just, just serendipitously, like he messaged me at exactly the right time um, and he got me. Yeah. So did he go with you at the first meeting? Nah, nah. So it was all on Zoom at that stage. Like he sticks to NA himself. But yeah, I just stuck my head into a meeting the next day. Yeah. So what's that like, you know, going to AA on a Zoom meeting for your first meeting? Yeah, hard to tell. I mean, like my first in-person meeting, I was kind of familiar with the program, so it wasn't quite so overwhelming and it's like intimidating as I see it can be for others. Yeah. So it's hard to tell because I haven't had the experience of doing it otherwise. Um, but I found that it made it a lot more accessible, you know? just right there in my room. That's all I had to do is log on, be on the webcam, talk to some people, listen to some people. Yeah. So how did you feel when people started talking about being alcoholics? Could you identify with that? Yeah, sure could. I don't remember what was said in that first meeting. It was pretty hazy, of course, and my short-term memory is not great. But I remember like feeling like I could identify. They asked me to identify because I said it was my first meeting. And, you know, like at that stage, I said, uh, I'm not sure if I'm an alcoholic or not. You know, like I think I'm just here to get some tips on how to drink like reasonably. And, you know, I recall seeing a few giggles, you know, like who's <laughs> funny, you know, like uh, I'll see it time and time again, you know, like someone will eventually identify as an alcoholic. They'll have a bit of a laugh about it themselves. Um, and that's what I did, you know. Yeah. yeah. So what was it that helped you, I guess, the most initially? What was the thing that sort of got you to accept that AA could help you? First and foremost, after that first meeting, I spent two weeks proving to myself with flying colours that I'm most definitely an alcoholic and shouldn't drink. And that's sort of at the crux of it all, you know, like no one could possibly impress upon me what alcohol has, you know, like that I had to learn my lesson by the bottle um, in order to start accepting what AA had to offer to me. Um, that's just my own experience. But like after that, just a welcoming nature of other alcoholics, you know, like in AA, we help newcomers as much as we possibly can because it keeps us sober, you know, service to other alcoholics and because it's wonderful to build up a fellowship and see people recover, you know, and that's how they treated me. You know, they were very welcoming, they were kind. Uh, they gave me their phone numbers, you know, like, you know, like started to read through the book with me a little bit and that sort of thing, you know, just, just making me feel very much a part of. Yeah, it really does help when people, I guess, have your best interest in heart and, instead of, I guess, the usual people that you come across in that situation who just want to take advantage of you. Yeah, and that's like, by default, that's sort of how my mind perceives oh, just about everyone and everything, you know what I mean? Like, that's getting better with time. But that's the alcoholic mind. That's my traumatised mind, you know, like a very dim perception of the world around me because I don't trust it. I don't feel safe. You know, it doesn't take me much to feel unsafe again. And I felt safe in AA, you know. Um, I felt safe around those people because they knew what I was talking about. They didn't judge me. You know, they didn't approach me like a social worker might. You know, just peers that knew what it was like and were in recovery and happy about it. And they made me feel very welcome. Yeah. So how was it for you stopping alcohol? Uh, if I had, like, sufficient reason, I never really had an issue stopping drinking. But my problem is, and this is, you know, like the counterintuitive thing, one of that I would learn about alcoholism is that stopping is no problem. Staying stopped, that's the problem, you know. So stopping alcohol, you know, like when I get to these points, even before AA, where I was just sick of 
being sick, sick of drinking all the time, sick of being miserable. I could stop, no problem. Uh, but I couldn't follow through, you know, like I couldn't keep it consistent. Um, and when I got to AA, you know, like I found something that could. And like, mind you, for that first 80 days of recovery, like I was smoking weed for like the first 66 days or something like that. So I wasn't entirely sober, you know, like I'm happy to be honest about that. Um, and I spent two weeks being sober and totally lost my mind, you know, go figure. But, you know, it's all steps in the right direction. Yeah, stopping was not an issue. Staying stopped was. Yeah. You mentioned that you stay stopped for 80 days. So what happened? I distanced myself from the program, you know, like uh, I hadn't had like the full experience yet because it had been on Zoom. Uh, and I believe anyone can recover like purely via Zoom, you know, like and by phone calls and everything like that. We've got the technology to make it possible. But I just, I don't know, I didn't have my head around it. I wasn't convinced necessarily that I was an alcoholic. You know, like I wasn't sober for a good majority of that time. And then I spent two weeks sober and then, you know, shortly before I relapsed, you know, I went through like half a bag of cocaine and then, you know, like I figure quite a few days later I was grumpy enough and stressed enough and disconnected enough from the program that, you know, I picked up a drink. Yeah. So how long did it take you before you realised that you needed to get back? About 11 days. And that was a crazy 11 days, you know, like I'm not much for the drunk along sort of crash and bash stories, but you know, at a glance, there was hospital trips, you know, like there was a lot of drug usage, you know, like by the end of it, you know, like I took myself to a, like a psych ward. I just tried to have myself committed, you know, that didn't work, unfortunately, but, um, you know, or perhaps fortunately, but, you know, like by the end of that, like I just, and that crazy, crazy distressing stuff had happened that I was ready again. I was just, <laughs> I was even more ready, you know, like, cause again, alcohol and drugs had shown me things that other people possibly you know just just couldn't just couldn't yeah yeah what brought you back to AA then what was the I guess the trigger event that time around it was just a desperation man like I'd had a taste of the knowledge you know like I'd interacted with many people that were sober and happy about it and had been sober for years and then you know like some people 10 years I was like I can't relate to that um and then some people like one year six months two years whatever I was like oh I can possibly relate to that you know like I've come close to that before even if I wasn't entirely sober um, and it was just a desperation man I was drinking on a little bit of knowledge at that time and I knew AA was the place where I'd get the solution by then because I'd spent 80 days doing it every day even being not you know entirely sober I heard what I needed to hear and by the time I was done like learning my lesson again having another step one experience of being totally powerless over drugs and alcohol and the world around me you know I was ready to come back yeah so what was it like going back then Oh, it's terrible. Now, that was not the only occasion. You know, like quite a few months later, like I managed to get like five and a half months up after that, and that was entirely sober. And then, you know, like I had a relapse again, you know, because again, I just like I've gotten too busy. I've gotten too well too quick. You know, I had two jobs. I was studying. I was doing placement. I was in a relationship. And I moved house without any days off. And my meetings went from like five or six a week to about one or two to none. And then I picked up a drink because I was just like that crazy in my own head that, I just, I didn't know what else to do, you know, so I defaulted to my old solution, which was to drink, and I drank for another three months after that, and that first relapse, you know, like that 11-day one, like that was like the crash and bash and the craziness, you know, like that you hear in the room sometimes, you know, it was just like, it was mental, it was, like it was so chaotic, uh, but then like the one after that, you know, like it wasn't, 
it wasn't that, you know, like a lot of things went wrong in my life, but it wasn't nearly as full on. I just got really, really, really unwell. You know, like I've never been that unwell in my life. You know, like I came very close to losing my life on a few occasions, like during that lapse. And it was just, oh, it was awful. It was really awful, like going back out there, you know, like drinking on knowledge, you know, that's rough. Um, you know, like knowing that I'm an alcoholic and I could find a solution if I went back to AA, but not wanting to stop and not feeling like I could, you know, being hopeless not being able to live with or without alcohol and just being totally out of answers. Uh, you know, that's not a good feeling, but just generally, like my mental health was just like the worst it has ever been. And that's 100% alcohol. You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on. You know, I abruptly stopped the medication. You're not supposed to stop. And it didn't help, but I did that because I picked up a drink and I'd become, you know, like a stubborn bastard again. You know, like I just... So how did you break out of that? When I spoke earlier about going to the psychiatrist, like to receive the ADHD diagnosis and all of that, and her saying, no, nah, like diagnosing me, but not prescribing me medication, which is like an essential part of the treatment for ADHD. Uh, that was the only hope that I had, you know, like to try and make a change about my alcohol consumption, because I was living in the story of like drinking to manage like the symptoms of my ADHD, you know, like I sort of, I just wrapped myself up in a web of denial about my alcoholism at that stage. And there's certain truth like to that story because those symptoms were very hard to manage without the appropriate treatment and alcohol helped. But I'm an alcoholic. Again, that's the foundational idea here. Like I'm an alcoholic and that's why I was drinking. And then I thought to myself, you know, after she said no, uh, I spent 15 minutes, you know, I got in the car, I just had a good yell and I was just so angry, you know, like so angry and so shattered uh, that this thing that I'd been pinning like all my hopes on, put all my eggs in that basket, like it didn't work out in my favour. Felt like that for about 15 minutes and then I thought to myself, well, shit, you know, like I know what I've got to do. Like I've got to go back to AA and I've got to stop drinking uh, because I was faced again with the decision, you know, like life had really given one to me, like really pulled the rug out and that was the decision I was given, you know, like stop like stop drinking and get the help that i need and like start to recover and get better or continue to drink never get that help because i won't be prescribed medication won't be able to engage in psychotherapy and all of that and just i don't know man like just get worse and worse and worse it was like uh, i don't know no one gave me the ultimatum but you know like the universe did i don't know and i just i made the right choice and now here i am you know i'm very glad that i did and i'm very glad that happened you know yeah, yeah. Professionals often act in a professional way, which is to all our benefit. So, I guess going back to AA then and stopping drinking, how long did it take before you were able to get medication for your ADHD sorted out? Then got sober. Uh, I believe it was June twenty fourth. I stopped drinking on the twelfth, but then I was smoking weed again for about twelve days. So I changed my sobriety date in the end. But yeah, June 24th, and then I think, oh, like early September, like I was able to see a psychiatrist and I had been sober for a very long period of time. Oh, not a very long, geez, three months. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've been sober for long enough um, and I was honest with my psychiatrist about it as well. Like, you know, like I'm an alcoholic, you know, I've like previous history of abusing amphetamines. You know, like I just told her a lot. I mean, it was a different one this time. And she was happy to prescribe me, you know, like a, like a slow release version. Yeah, and like, and, you know, like, the instant release as well, which uh, we, we agreed on. We'll start off on the slow release and just see how that goes, you know. And I've been able to use it responsibly and effectively ever since, which is back when I was drinking, man, like 
So I couldn't use anything responsibly. So what's your life like now, given you've been in, uh, been sober for about six and a half months? That's great. Yeah, life's great. I mean, like, life is life, you know. Like uh, getting sober doesn't make life, uh, or it doesn't change life, you know. Life continues to just do what it does. You know, there's always ups and downs. It's a bit of a roller coaster, you know. But being in active addiction, drinking all the time, um, it was like being on a merry-go-round, you know what I mean? It just, it was going nowhere in circles and circles and circles. And life today is good, you know, like bad things happen, uh, but the majority of them aren't because I got so pissed that I did something stupid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've got the tools like at my disposal now to be able to manage life when it doesn't go my way. Yeah. So what about friendships? Do you find it a bit easier now, you know, having friends in AA uh, to make other friends? Yeah, I've, I've discovered over time that, like, I make friends and socialise best if, like, I have a shared purpose, like, with somebody, like, in that moment. So, like, with a normal friend, maybe it's like, you know, we'll do an activity or go for a walk and that keeps me stimulated enough that, like, I can concentrate on them properly. And in AA, it's the same thing. You know, we're all there to stay sober. We're all there to help other people get sober and stay sober and be happy about it. You know, like a lot of us, I've got many very reliable, like just beautiful friends in AA, like really beautiful people that I know that I really take pleasure in talking to and seeing. Um, and it's amazing to see them just continually get better and get better and get better. And even people that do go back out there, pick up a drink, you know, like it's a privilege to welcome them back in um, and support them to, again, just give it another crack, you know, like it's like nothing I've ever experienced in terms of like a peer group or like a social group, you know? Yeah, yeah. So has it helped you with your relationship with your mum and dad? Yeah, my relationship with dad's been pretty good quite a few years, even when I was in active alcoholism, you know, like I'm less resentful nowadays and that certainly helps me to be more of service to my dad. And just to be kind and loving, you know, like that's the name of the game, tolerance and kindness to all. And with mum, certainly, you know, like I've still got quite a few issues that you know, sit underneath the surface there, but, you know, they'll have to be rectified in time. But, you know, like being sober, again, it's just changed my perspective, you know what I mean? Instead of looking at my parents and just being entitled, you know, like looking at them purely as like father and mother, and thinking, you know, like you didn't do the job that I thought you should have and now I'm left like with all this trauma and I feel kind of broken. And I still feel like a little bit like that. But for the most part, I'm like, well, you did your best, you know what I mean? Like my parents did their best. They were going through a lot as well. And I can be kind to them. I can humanise them. And I can just look to uh, support their well-being and health nowadays instead of being just, I don't know, entitled, demanding and resentful, you know. That's a, a crap way to live. Yeah, I think it's called part of the problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Okay, if anybody listening would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can phone them on 1300 222 or go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of local AA meetings. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Mike for sharing his recovery experience with us and talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped him. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Pleasure. No worries. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature another recovery program that can help people suffering from various addictions. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.